I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, really and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movie's music and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Hey, Chris. Hello, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to get into the late 80s period of John Carpenter and a movie that we've yes. been talking about since the very early days of just envisioning this show, which is 1987's Prince of Darkness, film that I had never seen up until this point. And it's one of the, the things that when we first started talking about doing a John Carpenter show, it was this uh, like revelation that I had, like, oh, I've always meant to see that 1987 movie, the middle of the Apocalypse trilogy. Um, this is one that you've been talking about a lot lately as uh, as sort of moving up into your top five or so of Carpenter films. Is that correct? I think it would be, yeah. I I see something new every time I watch this movie, and it's always an element that I missed on a previous viewing that I'm able to kind of have a little bit more of an appreciation for it. Um, I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means, but I just really, really enjoy watching this movie. Yeah, I think we have a lot to say about it. It's, uh, It's definitely one where you can tell this is not, Carpenter just sort of going through the motions. I mean, not that he ever really does that. Even his work for hire is uh, certainly has some distinctive qualities about it. But this one definitely has his stamp all over it. Written by John Carpenter as Martin Quartermass. That's not a real person. He's like John T. Chance. He's another pseudonym for Carpenter himself. So should be an interesting discussion. Before we get to that, though, because we are still basically under the same lockdown slash quarantine, whatever you want to call it, rules that we've been on for a while. Most people have a lot of time for watching movies. I know you have. What have you been watching lately? What are your quarantine recommendations? Uh, Still on the documentary tip, I mentioned last week that I had gotten all the way through Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street legacy, which I loved. My close friends, Josh and Megan Mosley, who also uh, have been guests on the show, gave me a nice surprise. They gave me an early birthday present this week. And somehow they were able to get their hands on this documentary that I've been looking for in uh, physical form on Blu-ray, or even just a place to rent it or stream it, but even better, a physical copy of. They got a very thoughtful gift from me, and it's a documentary called In Search of Darkness, which basically is the most comprehensive exploration of 80s horror movies um, through the perspective of the actors, directors, producers, everybody that worked on them. So you get a lot of familiar faces here. And what they they literally go through, Nick, they start in 1980, and then they go to 81. And for each year, they discuss maybe 15 to 20 different movies, just spending, you know, maybe three or four minutes on each one. So I said, this documentary is four hours and 24 minutes long. So I've been watching it, obviously, in segments. But uh, this is the kind of doc you really want to have something to write with um, when you're watching it, just because there's so many movies that I haven't seen. 
and you know I'm writing them down like oh man I got to see this I got to see that but as a fan of the genre it's just such a joy to watch it and John Carpenter is all over it man obviously and a lot of people from Carpenter's camp that we love you know the Keith Davids and and uh Tom Atkins Nick Castle it's just a lot of fun so that's what I've been watching you know I've I've seen some other things but I think that's kind of the thing that I'm most interested in right now that I've been viewing yeah, I'm really excited to see that. I don't know when I'm going to be able to carve out four and a half hours to watch it. I'll have to do it in um, multiple sittings. But I love 80s horror, as you know, and uh, and as you certainly do also. And I love just seeing documentaries about those kinds of movies and these scrappy, low-budget filmmakers. I mean, that's what 80s horror was. It was a profitable genre at the time. So you had not only the studios making things like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, but also you had all these independent filmmakers making movies like the evil dead that ended up sort of becoming cult phenomena on their own so anything about that period i'm always really fascinated the 70s the 80s even some of the early 90s films chris is there anything in that film like a movie that you hadn't heard of before that now you're just like like what's at the top of your list of stuff that you need to see from uh, from in search of darkness oh my god there's so many um i would say there's one have you ever heard of a movie called the burning I have. Yeah, from like 1980, right? 81. Okay. Um and apparently uh so, some of the um some of the folks that were on this doc spoke very highly of it. Uh, oddly Jason Alexander is in that movie and the clips of it just seem pretty good. It's about this summer camp guy who gets like a prank goes wrong and he gets like horribly burned and then he like basically is like lurking around the camp like hell bent on you know getting revenge on the people that like caused his disfigurement or something like that and I was like wow that seems like it's obviously like such a thing that was birthed out of like the Friday the 13th phenomenon and stuff like that but there's a lot Nick like I'm telling you I I I don't have my list on me but that's the first one that comes to mind that I was like huh I should check that out yeah of course I love slasher films from that period is that the one I I'm not sure if it's The Burning, but there's one that I believe launched Harvey Weinstein's career. I think he was the credited writer on, I want oh, to yeah. say... Oh, yeah, he's the writer, yeah. It's that movie, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. So I knew he did yeah. a slasher film in the early 80s, and that's what got him into the film industry. And, uh, of course, we know he's <laughs> he's no longer in the film industry, I guess, to, uh, to put it sort of nicely. But, yeah, I, I've seen clips of The Burning, actually, and I remember seeing Jason Alexander with hair, which is a pretty fascinating thing to see. Well, I, I think, you know, it's cool. <laughs> That's funny. Um, Like, I think Eli Roth's History of Horror was a great series. Um, and I was always kind of disappointed that Carpenter wasn't, for whatever reason, didn't contribute to that. Because I know he, he had to have been asked. So it's nice to see him on this, even though he seems kind of grumpy a lot of the time when he's being interviewed. Yeah, you know, he's just like, ah, Halloween 2, didn't want to make it, but whatever. <laughs> it's like... So Christine, yeah, didn't really want to make it. Yeah, the thing was a failure, so didn't get that. Like it's like it's really funny how he's like he's just so humble, like but to almost like a grumpy extent. It's weird his like disposition with everything, you know. Yeah, like I never usually see him as curmudgeonly. Like I watch these interviews with him, like contemporaneous interviews for movies that he did, and listen to the commentaries on things, and he always just seems so nice and friendly and willing to talk about stuff and really wanting to break down shots and and people that he worked with, and he's always like really kind about his collaborators and things like. You know, I'm thinking like the Thing commentary and the Halloween commentary he did with Jamie Lee Curtis 
Curtis, where everybody just seems like his best friend kind of thing. So I guess I'd be sort of interested to see that other side of him uh, as well. But he always comes <laughs> off as a really nice guy to me. Like, I think you and I could probably have a pretty good conversation with him if you want to come on the show, John. Um, speaking of the 1980s, so I, I have not <laughs> had much chance to watch any movies at all, except for at least the ones for the show. And I do get films assigned to me for my uh, my film writing job at Film Threat. But for the most part, I am only watching movies that I have to watch for other projects like this. So uh, I haven't really seen anything memorable recently other than Prince of Darkness. But I've been playing a video game called Broforce that came out a few years ago. I picked it up really cheap on the PlayStation Store. And it's a really fun game for film fans, particularly film fans of our generation who grew up in the 80s and 90s and idolized all the action heroes. It's a very sort of 8-bit NES almost style shoot 'em up game it's just like kill lots of people blow stuff up you can blow up all of the terrain and the territory and vehicles and trees and buildings and stuff like that um, but the reason why i downloaded it is because basically the whole loop of the gameplay is you unlock characters there's like dozens and dozens of new characters you can unlock and they all have special weapons and they're all based on 80s and 90s action movie heroes so there's like a robocop character and a terminator character and an Indiana Jones character and the one that I haven't unlocked yet that I'm really excited to get to. I mean, I, I don't get to play for very long, so I'm kind of proceeding very slowly through this game, but I have read that there's a Snake Plissken character in the game. He's called Snake Broskin, and yes. I cannot wait to see what his weapon is and what his special weapon is, because they all have one of those, and see what his little 8-bit avatar looks like, so I've been having a lot of fun with that. It brings back, of course, a lot of fun memories of, of movies that I love a lot. There's like a John McClane character. There's a Blade character. My favorite is, I, I think he's based on Walker, Texas Ranger, which I never watched, but he's got a cool shotgun and he has bombs. And there's a Dirty Harry character where he's got a six shooter. He's got the Magnum and it's like super powerful, but then you have to reload after six bullets where like the John McClane character just like fires off machine gun bullets like endlessly. It's really fun, really cute and um, totally designed, I think, for people like me who just need a little bit of quick Twitch gaming and between other things and grew up with all of that stuff. So uh, I highly suggest you check it. I, I don't know if you have any current video game systems, but it's on PC also. Um, but I, I think probably you can get it on Switch and Xbox and all those. I'm playing it on PlayStation 4 and I cannot wait to see. Like I, I, The only reason I bring it up is because of that one little Carpenter reference there. Maybe there's more. I don't know. Maybe uh, it would be very cool if there's a Jack Burton, but I don't think so. I think it's just, <laughs> <laughs> just snake bro skin, but I can't wait to see what he looks like. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it really is. I was reading, um, you know, there is a, a Thing game for Xbox, the original Xbox mm. console, that I've heard is really, really good. It's like a survival horror game where you basically have to manage your team in terms of who trusts who and how much they trust you as a leader. And then people that are following you, just like in the movie, they may be possessed by the Thing. They might Thing out in the middle of uh, something else, and then you have to kill them in their monster form. So I've always wanted to play that, but I was just watching a YouTube video a couple weeks ago and apparently there was a snake plissken video game i think right around that era like xbox playstation 2 era and it looks awesome i mean they actually had some gameplay footage of it or, or at least some conceptual gameplay footage of it and i was thinking like how cool would that have been like why have we never had a game where you could play a snake plissken before i don't know i'd play it i think i think carpenter himself is kind of a gamer 
Uh, I feel like I read that somewhere. Oh, I, I'm sure he is. And I mean, I, I've definitely seen yeah. some some things in his movies that would just lend themselves so perfectly to video games. So, of course, that got me into a YouTube K-hole um, just looking at other Carpenter video games over the years. Like, I think it was Commodore or Amiga, one of the early, like, 80s computer systems. There was a Big Trouble in Little China game. And it looks fucking terrible. But on the other <laughs> hand, if you were a fan of that movie back in the day, well, you could sort of play yeah. it at home. You, like, fight these little little ninjas it kind of scrolls right to left anyway um so that's, oh, that's uh, nice. that's been sort of my leisure time over the last couple weeks but i think we've got a lot to say about prince of darkness so we will be right back to get into our discussion of prince of darkness anyone in close proximity has the same dream what is it a secret that can no longer be kept. It started a month ago. What started? A change in the earth and the sky. His power. All right, we are back talking about 1987's Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter's return to horror after uh, Big Trouble in Little China and Starman and a lot of films that just didn't really fit into the horror category. I mean, basically everything he's ever done was a genre film in some way, but I think I've talked about this on the show before. I don't necessarily love that term genre films because it covers so many different types of things. I mean, when we talk genre films, it's horror, sci-fi, action, sort of anything in that, that exploitative anything that has those kind of elements to it but that can encompass everything from Big Trouble in Little China to Prince of Darkness and they're two very very different movies. Uh, it's also yes. Carpenter's return to independent filmmaking so after doing these studio films for a number of years and after some of them not being as successful as he wanted them to be, uh, Big Trouble in Little China as we talked about was kind of a box office failure that didn't find the cult audience that it now has until it was out on home video for a long time so Carpenter basically at this point kind of had had it with the studio system at least for a while and decided to sign a, a contract with an independent company and make smaller movies. I believe the budget of this one is only $3 million, so he's taking a, a real step down in budget, but also a few steps up in terms of independence. Uh, he wrote this movie under the assumed name of Martin Quartermass, much like John T. Chance, the editor of Assault in Precinct 13. That's just a pseudonym for Carpenter. That's just him doing multiple jobs, wearing multiple hats. Uh, of course, he composed this movie too. And Chris, like I said before, I had never seen this movie before and it was one that I had been very excited to check out. And so I went to, I actually watched it, uh, I have Xfinity, and it was streaming free on demand on Xfinity. And so I, I'm scrolling through, I searched for it, I found it, and I was just about to hit play. And then the description of this movie just sort of caught my eye, and I texted you a picture of it because I just was so entertained by this. Uh, their description of Prince of Darkness reads, Priest Donald Pleasance shows Professor Victor Wong canister of liquid Satan. And... <laughs> And on the one hand, that really beautifully describes what this movie is. On the other hand, that's definitely a, a description writer, a caption writer, just doing something kind of cheeky. But I love that phrase, liquid Satan. Um, yeah, when liquid when Satan you and I like someday open up a John Carpenter-themed bar, I want that to be the signature drink, is the liquid Satan. Ooh, It'll have to be green. Like There's got to be something swirling around in the glass, and it's got to be kind of bright green. Maybe Midori or something like that. I love that stuff. It's gross, but oh I love God. it. Oh, my God. 
Dude, you're getting me so excited. A John Carpenter themed bar. That is such a great idea. Well, have you seen there's a meme going around where someone was doing like a, a thing themed party and made jello shots in petri dishes. They were red jello shots in petri dishes and they all had the little labels on them like <laughs> Nalls and McCready and Childs. And I th- of course they I did. I thought that was a great idea too. So we'll definitely have to serve those. But yeah, I think a Carpenter bar, you know, that like in Brooklyn, places like that, they always have these little pop up bars i know they did a tarantino one not too long ago so uh once we're all back out into the world and uh, and drinking in bars again which i miss a lot uh maybe we should do that i don't know if we have to maybe we'll do a, a north and a south right like you open one in florida i'll open one in new york and um you know we'll see if the carpenter fans come out for it but yeah that is the signature drink look if I could talk you into doing a podcast on John Carpenter films, I can talk you into <laughs> investing in the, you know, the Who bar knows what it, else you could talk me into. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a lot of fun. We could do theme I nights. Oh, man. But anyway, I, I just like with this film, I knew so much about it, but also I had this like really wrong sort of conception of it. Um, I always thought it took place in a small town. It takes place in a big city. I didn't know it was kind of a one location kind of movie, which is what it basically mm-hmm. becomes. And so just all these little things. I mean, that description, it kind of tells you everything, but it tells you nothing. I knew it was kind of on a religious horror kind of tip. Like I knew there was I mean, Prince of Darkness, right? That's uh, like a phrase that you've heard in in other religious horror kind of things and referring to the devil. But I I guess I was not expecting some of the, the things that this film did. I'm not even sure where to start here. Like, I, I don't necessarily think we need to break this down the way we did with Big Trouble in Little China, where we just go through the plot point by point, because that movie, it sort of lent itself to that so much. And this one, there's just so many different elements uh, that I want to talk about. But as we were saying just a second ago, this is Carpenter's return to independent filmmaking and kind of a return to his roots in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, just to broad stroke it, I think um, many people... And I think rightfully so. I, I, I am in this in this category of thought that this is definitely one of his most underrated films. It's a film that a lot of people that are familiar with John Carpenter have never seen or have never heard of. Um, and as you said, yeah, he signed a deal with, I think it was, is it Alive Films or Alive Pictures, where they were going to give him three movies at a $3 million budget apiece. Um, I wonder what happened to the third film, because obviously he did They Live right after this. Um, and then there's a, there's a, a about a four-year break before he makes another movie. But yeah, this is definitely a... I feel like this is an underrated film, and I think that, like you said, a return to his roots, a return to horror after Starman and and Big Trouble, and also um, just kind of... I think he's... A lot of his movies, like almost everyone we talk about, really don't get the success or attention that they deserve until years after they're made. And I remember this one was one of the last ones I had seen when I was watching all his movies. And I was like, how have I never seen this before? Yeah, I mean, same here with the Apocalypse trilogy. I mean, I think The Thing is his best movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And I really like In the Mouth of Madness also. And then there's this other one. It's kind of like the the redheaded stepchild of the Apocalypse trilogy where, um, you know, I, I remember a lot. Like, I, I guess maybe it's just the age that I'm at. But I remember when In the Mouth of Madness came out and seeing the trailers and seeing the TV spots for that and being like, oh, that looks really scary. I can't wait to see that movie. And of course, The Thing is like this stone cold classic or, or at least it was by the time I came of age as a movie fan. But yeah, this one seems to get sort of maybe forgotten about a little bit there, but 
Again, it is a, a much smaller movie. It's a step out of the studio system. $3 million is not much, even back then, even in 1987, it's not a lot to make a movie on. But the idea is with with a lower budget, you get that much more creative freedom. And I guess the people at Alive Films just sort of understood that that's where Carpenter came from, right? I mean, he was a low-budget genre auteur that made movies for a very small amount of money. And when they hit, like with Halloween, they were very successful. So, uh, so I would certainly sign on i'd give him a three picture deal to do this stuff and then of course they live in 1988 came right after that um what's fascinating to me is like john carpenter is a guy who just did not take a break right like he had such a roller coaster of a career and all these ups and downs in terms of critical success and commercial success and just sort of like his relationship with the studios and all that and his relationships just sort of with the film going public and nevertheless he just kept on making movies right like we're we just talked about a movie from 86 this one's from 87 he did another one in 88 i mean you were just saying he took a break uh, eventually after that but up until this point i mean he's just a workhorse like he's always making something and it's given us a lot to talk about on this show but i don't think i realized i mean I, i kind of knew before we started talking about this how many movies he had made but i never realized how close together some of them were until we started talking about years and release dates and and stuff like that. Um, this is a totally John Carpenter signature film. This was not a script that existed mm-hmm. that he picked up and, and was brought on to later on, but this was his own original idea. Do you know anything about, I, I've been just sort of reading about the, just the genesis of this movie. Uh, one of the things that inspired him was Deborah Hill had a dream about a dark, scary looking figure emerging out of a church doorway. So that was something that he was thinking about. And that actually, it's one of my favorite parts of the film that we'll get into. Uh, that's a sort of a recurring visual motif in the film is this dream sequence, I guess we can call it, where we see the entrance of a church and something dark and mysterious sort of emerging out of that, a sort of nightmare sequence. And then also, and I think this is really interesting, we're talking about the 1980s here, and you and I, of course, as we've already talked about even on this episode, we're big fans of the horror of the 1980s, and a lot of it was sort of like teenager-oriented, a lot of it was slasher films and sequels and films that were sort of bringing in that drive-in sort of teenage audience, and you know, some of the stuff I've read about Carpenter, he basically was saying, I wanted to make a more serious, more intelligent, more sort of artsy horror movie. So rather than teenage characters, we've got scientists and grad students and priests in this movie. It's not so much the, uh, you know, teenage cannon fodder that you see in other horror films of the time. And this film has really, really big ideas in it. Uh, I would call this conceptually maybe his most ambitious movie. It's not his biggest movie. It's not his most over-the-top, crazy, wild, uh, big-budget movie. But in terms of the ideas at play here, I don't think he ever quite did anything that was just reaching for such major themes and major ideas and and just sort of big time scientific and religious and philosophical points that he's trying to make throughout this movie. I mean, this is a movie that's about something. This is not just a genre film that's out there to spook you, but it's one that kind of makes you think about the world that you live in and your own existence and what's real and what's not. And of course, I love movies like that. So uh, I don't know, just a few things just sort of going into this that make it a really interesting entry in the Carpenter canon, I think. 
Yeah, that's so cool, too, how I was reading about how he was inspired by, you know, atomic theory and theoretical physics and things like that. I'm like, wow, this dude in his spare time is just researching, like, all these deep scientific concepts. And um, I love this quote here that I pulled. This is... um, uh, John Carpenter saying, I thought it would be interesting to create some sort of ultimate evil and combine it with the notion of matter and antimatter, um, which is what a lot of the concepts of this movie kind of, a lot of the concept of this movie is. And you're right. Yeah, it's it's really kind of, um, I would absolutely agree. I don't know if everything consolidates the the way it could have most optimally, but it's definitely his most <laughs> ambitious picture as far as just the ideas and I think it's an for a low budget film. I think the effects are incredible, and I think it's a really good looking picture. Um, it it looks great. Yeah, we got to talk about that also because he's working with a new cinematographer here, Gary B. Kibbe, and this is a guy who starts his career with Carpenter here, and then basically continues on for a lot of other films. He shoots They yep. Live and uh, and a lot of his 90s films. Gary Kibbe passed away earlier this year, actually in March, which I didn't know. Um, I thought he was mm. still working. Um, but yeah, this is a split between Carpenter and Dean Cundey. This, of course, I mean, Dean Cundey, who basically got his start with Carpenter, not, not exactly, but of course was uh, the cinematographer on a lot of the early Carpenter films, is now going on to like way bigger stuff. Uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit, which he was nominated for the Oscar for. And then he does a bunch of Spielberg movies. So he is a you know, hook in Jurassic Park. Like he was kind of Spielberg's guy in the early 90s before Janusz Kaminski wow. came along. So uh, Kundi has kind of left the, the picture and this guy, Gary Kibbe, has come in. And yeah, I think this is a really terrific looking movie. Um, I would very much agree with you on, on all of those points. Like I love the idea. Like this movie's talking about quantum theory at a time when you never heard about that stuff in movies. Like there's a discussion about Schrodinger's cat in this movie and there's all kinds of like the matter and antimatter stuff. And we see that a lot now. I mean, maybe that's just more of a subject that people are more interested in now. And now we have like quantum computing and we all sort of are thinking about quantum mechanics and how that might enable time travel. It's always sort of brought up in time travel movies, but I don't ever remember seeing a movie from this era that was so into those big scientific ideas. Uh, But I would agree with you. It doesn't, I mean, you said it in a much nicer way than I'm going to. I think the third act of this movie is an absolute mess. Um, I think it sets up a lot of things that it's just unable to pay off. So as much as it's a big idea movie, I don't necessarily know that those ideas are as satisfying as they can be. But I will say, I mean, there, there are some incredibly creepy scenes in this movie. There are set pieces that I think work really well. There's cinematography that works really well. I mean, I didn't love this movie because I think it has some major, major flaws that we'll get to, but I was just kind of fascinated by it. Like, this is it's not one of his best movies to me, but it's one of his most interesting movies. And because it is, it's so much him, right? Like this is his own original script, his own original ideas. And, uh, and it is him with a lot more creative control than he had had up to this point. And he doesn't have to work from like a Stephen King novel. He's not working from an earlier film like he did with the thing. If he had a collaborator on the writing for this, we don't, 
know i mean it, it sounds like he really didn't that all this kind of came out of his head whereas with halloween you know deborah hill contributed a lot to that screenplay oh and, yeah and a lot of yeah. the characterization in that movie comes from her um but this is kind of carpenter just totally unleashed and i love to see stuff like that you know i mean i will i would love an ambitious movie that's not perfect much more than a perfect movie that's not ambitious you know what i mean like yes i like yes. to see a director like carpenter just sort of swing for the fences and even if it's swinging a <laughs> <laughs> which I think this film very much is. It's just fascinating to look at and fascinating to talk about. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot to like about this film, and and especially if you're a Carpenter fan, I mean, we should start off by saying that um, the things you will like are, you know, I already mentioned, like, the, the special effects are great. It's a, it's a beautiful looking picture. It's pleasing to the eye to look at. Um, but it's, it's casted very well. I mean, you've got Donald Pleasance here, who's always great. I mean, obviously playing Loomis in Halloween and then the president in Escape from New York, we get Donald Pleasance back here as a priest and then Victor Wong and Dennis Dunn come back from Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Peter Jason is in this film who ends up being in, I don't know, seven or eight different Carpenter movies. The music for this is excellent. It's one of my favorite scores. I really, I, we, we talked about his, uh, the anthology album, and this was a score that I was not familiar with. And I was like, wow, that's really, really good. I can't wait to see this movie. And it sounds great in the movie. Yeah, there's so much music in this movie. I mean, there's music playing like almost the entire running time of the movie. And I love that. We get some Alice um, Cooper music too. We get some Alice Cooper, and we also get Alice Co- Cooper. Co star Alice uh, Cooper. Yeah. And, um, I also really love the the beginning of the movie. I love the black backdrop with the the white credits, the, the the font that they use, and I love how that just goes on like forever. Like I never want that to end. I mean, this movie is running credits for like the first ten minutes of it, and for some reason, I just love that. It, um, you know, it's funny you should mention that, right? Because I love those credit sequences too, and you hardly ever see those anymore. Like movies, m- I know. mostly save the credits for the end. I'm thinking of like the Marvel movies, you know, where you watch this two and a half hour movie, and then there's like there's no credits, and then you get these amazing credit sequences at the very end, and you sit through them because you know there's going to be a scene after that. But like back in the '80s, you had these beginning credit sequences and you know not that we need to know everyone who is involved in the production of this movie i mean they do kind of go on for a long time but to me it's just sort of like it sets a mood and it does something to you as a a film viewer that i think just launching right i mean some movies do a really good cold open and then they'll have a credit sequence like you know james bond movies do that but i always sort of liked i guess just because it's what i grew up with and what i was familiar with these sort of extended credit sequences at the beginning and Carpenter's really great with that you know Halloween is the one that comes to mind where you had a sort of similar thing and it's just great the typeface is perfect and the music is perfect and it just really puts you in the mindset for it so I mean Precinct 13 as well and totally you know it's it's and I think that there's there's a certain element of like patience and like care in that that I like I don't know and every time I watch I just love it like when it finally drops and it's like directed by John Carpenter and you're just like, oh shit, this is awesome. You know, yeah, like, it's it's like the uh, pregame. <laughs> it yeah, is. It, yeah. it just sort of pumps you up for the movie and it sets the movie as like an event, right? Like you're not just watching this thing that just 
boom just starts happening in front of you. <laughs> but it kind of just prepares you, draws your eye to the screen. It's like, all right, pay attention. You got an hour and 40 minutes of satanic scientific craziness ahead yeah. of you. And, right. Uh, and then what I'll, what, I'll, what I'll say just kind of as, a, as another broad stroke, you know, because I talked about the things that um, are the, 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 the likable elements about this movie. I mean, I will totally admit, like, uh, I agree with you. I, I would say that things kind of fall apart towards the end a little bit. Um, I think that my appreciation for this movie has grown enough to excuse some of those things, but I definitely think like the, say maybe the last 25 minutes of the movie, it's just like the situation where it's not as strong as the first half of the movie. And I think part of that, Nick, is what you were talking about, about before is that this movie sets up so many things and so many ideas to look forward to. And we really don't know what the hell is going on. I mean, we have all these scientists, they're all doing their, you know, whatever field they're an expert in to try to research what this canister of green liquid is. And as the stakes get higher and as things get more suspenseful and intensify more, we just end up with, uh, you know, these characters that, I mean, they're not really, it's not like Dennis Dunn is like jumping around like Liu Kang in this movie, you know, <laughs> fighting off zombies and stuff like that. There, there's, there's not really many great fighting sequences because none of these people are fighters. So I think that makes it harder to pull off the action sequences a little bit more. Well, but, yeah, uh, and I mean, the budget also. Like, it, it's a very good-looking movie for $3 million, but considering how epic the themes... I mean, this is literally good and evil on the most epic religious scale, and then it sort of becomes a movie right. where it's just people in a building... Um, you know, and possession and stuff like that. And of course, demonic possession is always like a low budget film sort of trope, because when the demon is inside a person, then that person can just look like a person. Whereas when it's the thing, for example, when it's an alien, then you actually have to create an, a monster out of prosthetics and latex and animatronics and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think this movie just bites off a lot more than it can chew and it just but I, I'm not sure if it's a budgetary thing or it's just more of a I, I don't know how to end this movie. Right. Like, I'm not sure exactly what I wanted, but I think the reason why I was so frustrated with the third act is because leading up to that is just so good. And there's so much creepiness and there's so much dread in this movie. Like, I think it's very much a companion piece with the thing, which the apocalypse trilogy that we talked about is kind of a loose mm. thing. And it's not I mean, they're not linked by much other than just sort of this dread and this theme of the end of humanity kind of thing. And I think it does a really great job of that. And there are parts of this movie that I think are as good as the thing. I mean, I was, you know, about an hour into it and I was like, wow, like this is probably going to end up being one of my favorite Carpenter movies. And it was after that, that I sort of lost that feeling a little bit, but there are moments um, like when, when things start getting really bad for the characters in this movie, I think it's one of Carpenter's biggest strengths as a filmmaker is that low point in the story where everything just looks like it's going to go to hell he really gets that across really well, I think. He has this really great, you know, atmosphere is such a hard thing to pull off. It's the hardest thing to do as a filmmaker. Well, they say comedy is the hardest thing, but I think making people feel dread and making people feel for the characters that all is lost, I think that's a very difficult thing to do because, of course, it's a movie. And in most movies, even when things feel like everything is going to hell and all is lost, you know there's going to be a happy ending because it's a movie. With Carpenter, and, and certainly The Thing does this really well, 
you sort of hit these points where it's like, oh, things really are bad and they're not going to get better. They're going to get worse. And you really do feel that sort of apocalyptic dread of the characters. When people start dying in this movie, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be one of those movies where everybody dies. Right. And uh, and it doesn't turn out to be that. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of great atmosphere, a lot of great suspense here. There's some good gore. Uh, there's there's some interesting kills in this movie. One of them supplied by Alice Cooper. And it was the, the bike thing. <laughs> I, I love that. That yeah. is so great. The, which, the fact which, that that's in this movie is just awesome. Yeah, which yep. I didn't know was an Alice Cooper. That's like a signature thing from his stage show. Right. And Carpenter was like, I will let you be in my movie, but you have to let me have that because that's just so cool and so much fun. And... Yeah, he impales a dude on a bicycle. <laughs> Etchison, yeah. That guy who's not Justin Long, but looks exactly like Justin Long. He could be Justin Long's dad. So basically, I mean, I've got to tell you right now, though, my, my favorite... Uh... My favorite kill in this movie is the dude that gets um, covered in all the bugs and um, then his head just like sort of falls off. And like that scene is so creepy, man, when he when they all look out the window and he's got that kind of like gurgly voice and he's like, I have a message for you and you're not going to like it. Yes. And his head just falls off. And it's like I was like, oh, my God, I love that scene. That scene is so all of this creepy. stuff with the bugs, the maggots, uh, when the bag lady comes up and uh, she's sort of Ugh. like bowing down at Donald Pleasance's feet and she's got a cup full of maggots and he looks right into it. I mean, there's a lot of really... Dude, the look on his face, <laughs> oh, the look yeah. on his face when he's... <laughs> Pleasance is just so good in this. Um, even though we're not going scene by scene, we should try to... We should at least give our audience like, let's not be too lazy about it as far as the plot. I mean, if you had to explain this thing in... This is a really hard movie to do, like, the 30-second description on, but... A canister if of Liquid had to, I just did it in, in three seconds. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because there are so many concepts in here, but, I mean, if you were just to give someone the, the layman's term description of this movie, like, hey, Prince of Darkness, what's it about? How would you break it down? Okay, well, it's about... It, it opens on a college campus. Oh, uh, I shouldn't... <laughs> I've already blown it. <laughs> um... Basically, it's a film about a long-buried secret in the, the crypt or a, a sort of lower basement of a church that's right in the middle of, I think it's Los Angeles. I think this is set mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. We never really, well, we do. They talk about, I think they're at USC or something like that. Yeah. So uh, it is about a, basically a long buried secret. It's a canister with some green thing swirling around inside it. And Donald Pleasance is a priest that finds out about this and basically learns from the, the previous caretaker of this secret that's buried, not <laughs> boy, this is tougher than I thought. <laughs> this thing that, that is held or kept in secret in the bowels of this abandoned church. That was a church, a working church, until a few decades before the events of the movie. And there was a priest who lived in this abandoned church and basically looked after this secret that was in the basement. He dies, and Donald Pleasance is uh, another representative of the Catholic Church and finds not only this thing, which is this giant canister of some weird green liquid, but also the notes that were taken by this priest and all the previous caretakers of this thing. Right. And basically what he figures out is this thing is uh, an embodiment of the son of Satan, essentially. Or, uh, I mean, it is... It is the the essence. You're doing of, great, Nick. Of, I, I think I'm doing the worst <laughs> job I've ever done in anything ever. 
<laughs> it's it's a manifestation, a physical manifestation of a force that is sort of anti-everything. And it is held in check by this device, which is a canister with a lid and a lock that only opens from the inside, which is a creepy reveal from later in the movie. And basically, I mean, it, it's a fascinating idea because this priest, Donald Pleasance, whose character is just known as priest, he's never given a name. Um, he basically understands it from a religious perspective because he is a priest, but he also understands it from a scientific perspective. Like this is antimatter. This is a thing that could bring about the end of all of the organization of the universe that makes our universe and makes our world run. So rather than sort of bring this to the Pope, he brings it to a famous physics professor. Uh, this is Victor yes. Wong's character, Professor Howard Barak, Barak. I'm not sure. I'll go with that. Yeah, it's they pronounce it once or twice in the film. But he's basically, I, I've just calling him Victor Wong. He's Victor Wong. I love that guy. And he is one of those sort of like star professors. He runs, I, I guess it's at USC, this physics program that like all these, I, I assume all these students are grad students. They never really say. When I first saw Jameson Parker's character in this movie, I was like, wow, these are really old college students. But, you know, I yeah. went to grad school. I was in my late 20s. I, I turned 30 just after I graduated. So they kind of look like late 20-somethings. They kind of look more like young 30-somethings. But it makes sense if they're grad students. But anyway, he runs his program and he basically coerces his students. I don't know how he's able. I mean, it's, it's sort of glossed over, but he basically talks a bunch of his students and then a bunch of other students from other disciplines at USC, uh, like linguistics, so they can translate this book, this book of notes about this canister. Um, he takes them out to the church and basically locks them in there for a weekend, and they all go along with it kind of reluctantly. Well, he, like, incentivizes them with, like, extra credits or something like that, or, like, a better grade. And, and, and certainly there's, you know, some people are more reluctant to go than others. Like, Dennis Dunn is all pissed because he's missing his date for the weekend or something <laughs> like that. You know, he's complaining about it the entire movie. Yeah. Um, but, but I think he incentivized them with, like extra credit or something but yeah so they uh they go to this church they hole up in there i mean there's like dormitories in there so they can stay in the church and you know one of my thoughts at the beginning of this film is like okay if this is going to be one of those one location movies how are they going to keep them in there and basically the way they keep them in that one location is that it's this sort of derelict neighborhood somewhere in los angeles and there's all these homeless people out on the street and they all seem to be members of the same cult that worships or are, are manipulated by whatever is in this canister and they basically block all the exits and they kill people when they try to leave and that, that happens later in the film but we sort yeah. of see these moments of them being very threatening early on and then when things do get sort of dicey in there and things start happening that are dangerous and scary when they try to make their escape uh, there's just dozens of cultist homeless people possessed by this thing led by alice cooper uh you know with uh, <laughs> very very pale pasty faced makeup on being as scary as i've ever seen alice cooper like i always found him kind of silly but i think he's pretty scary in this movie i think the character because he doesn't talk much uh, maybe he doesn't talk at all um but because he's just sort of silent and creepy and not sort of over the top about it i found him kind of frightening in this i found him much scarier than i've ever seen him you know in his concert appearances and his music videos and stuff like that <laughs> let me jump in for a second here though because one thing that i'd like to add to this 
And this is great. Like, listening to you describe it right now, like, if I had never seen this movie, I'd be like, this sounds like the coolest movie I've ever <laughs> but, <laughs> totally. like, but like, But, like, basically, very early on in the movie, we get these um, images of, like, you know, things are off. Like, there's something just off in, like, the sky, you know, there's like the, the moon and the sun are out at the same time. And then there's all these images of decay. Like you were talking about the insects before where there's just like piles of ants everywhere. And like um, there's that one scene where the character who's the blonde guy. I'm trying to think of his name in this movie. You mean um, Brian Marsh, the least charismatic yeah, yeah, yeah. hero of all time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's that scene where he's like watching TV and the and the camera kind of pulls out and there's like bugs all over the TV and stuff like that. So, oh, I, I love that shot. There's one, I think it's before that, where Victor Wong's character is just outside this classroom building and he's looking up at the sun and the moon and there's something weird going on in the sky and sort of ominous yeah. looking weather. And then the camera just sort of tilts down a little bit and there's just this pile of ants that it looks like there's millions of them and they're just sort of right there but they're outside of his his view and yeah we get these sort of omens of something ominous uh about to happen and like i kind of thought at that point that this was going to be a, a much bigger scale movie but as i said it kind of ends up being much like the thing or assault in precinct 13 it becomes a one location kind of movie it's characters yep. trapped in a particular and and you were mentioning that shot before it's one of the scariest sequences in the movie with uh with the bugs that sort of form uh, a human form and then it starts talking and then his body parts start falling off and it's like characters looking out the window a lot at the threats that are outside and then also mm -hmm. in this film they are inside as well so unlike assault in precinct 13 there's really no safe place to go here but yeah it's uh these students go to investigate whatever this thing is they don't really know at first they bring in all of this equipment and what i really liked what this movie kind of reminded me of it reminded me of a lot of other things to be honest but um i was thinking about in the 80s where there was this kind of interest in science explaining the supernatural or the paranormal and the movie that i thought of was poltergeist right because you get those, mm. that team of parapsychologists in that movie who move into the freeling household that supposedly has a ghost infestation a poltergeist problem and they bring all their fancy equipment and all this like really high-tech computer equipment and analytical oh, equipment yeah. and we get a scene just like that in this movie i mean they basically set up a command center in the church and then they bring bring some stuff down into the basement, into this crypt. That is, it's a beautiful set. I mean, there's just oh, candles yeah. everywhere. And then this canister of swirling green liquid, like right in the middle of it, uh, or just a great piece of production design and really well shot. But they set up, set some stuff up in there. And the idea is, you know, this might be a religious thing, but also we're going to study it in a very empirical kind of way. We're going to look at it through the lens of science. And, you know, even the movie Ghostbusters, right? Like that's what those guys were at the beginning of that movie was kind of paranormal investigators who wanted to view these otherworldly things through the lens of science. So I don't know. I guess maybe that was a thing in the 80s. Um, I remember the other thing this reminded me of is, do you remember on TV in the late 80s there were those commercials for like time life books about the unexplained and the unknown <laughs> i do actually yeah. like yeah. they were super creepy it was all about like ufos and ghosts and things like that and i got kind of that vibe from this too so i guess people are just kind of 
I don't know. They they wanted to know more about these unknown sort of phenomena at that time. And this movie just does a, a really neat job of bringing that all together and taking that idea seriously. And, and this is, I mean, aside from some terrible comic relief dialogue in this movie uh, that but we'll have to talk sure. about because it, it really is awful. Um, but aside from that, this is a film that takes itself seriously. Like, this is not a joke. This is not a tongue-in-cheek kind of movie. And particularly coming after Big Trouble in Little China, which is like the most over-the-top tongue-in-cheek kind of movie. I was impressed just by the the sort of gravity that this film affords to everything and just how seriously it takes these big-scale religious and philosophical and scientific ideas. I mean, like I said, this is a movie that talks about quantum mechanics a lot, and and that is central to the plot of this movie, is the idea that there are forces in the universe that we don't necessarily understand, but that doesn't make them not true. Right, like religion and telekinetics and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, so basically, Alice Cooper impales this guy on a bike. (laughs) 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 And then... (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, you know, they're they're all trapped in here by these kind of sch- the schizophrenic homeless people that are very much zombie-like. Uh, so we find out that if anybody tries to leave this building, they're going to be killed by this this weird group of derelicts. And, um, I, you know, I, I kind of like the... Uh, I like the journey a little bit. I like how they're discovering things about this canister. Like, when they carbon date it, they find out that, like, the lid on it is, like, five million years old or something. Or when it finally gets to the scene where, it, you know, it shoots the, the liquid. Uh, it shoots the liquid out. And that kind of, like, that liquid, like, transforms um, Kelly into the, uh, is it Kelly? Oh, man. I don't, I don't know her character's name now, but... Um, oh, I believe transforms her to like the physical vessel of Satan or whatever. Susan is the character who gets possessed Su- first, right? Susan, and then, and then said, right, Kelly Susan, is yeah, the yeah. one who goes through the really bizarre transformation at the end. This film becomes almost body horror like for a while, where yeah, she's yeah, kind yeah. of lying on a table and her skin is coming apart and it looks like she's going to give disgusting. birth to something. Yeah, and, and Dennis Dunn's character, yeah. Walter, is watching this through the window of a confessional. That's great lighting there. I love confessional lighting in movies where you get that yeah. patterned uh, wall that you can see through. And they shoot light through it. Um, so it, it kind of goes off in that direction. It becomes almost like a zombie movie at points uh, because it does, once this thing gets out of the canister, it shoots liquid all over the ceiling, which is a very cool looking visual. And then basically these characters, once you have this liquid in your body, you are possessed by it and then you could pass it on to other people. So there's a lot of gross sort of spitting in other people's mouths in this movie. Yes, and that's that's one thing, that's one thing I wanted to point out that I'm not a huge huge fan of but I don't I don't I don't particularly like the modality of how this thing is spread you know um it's pretty disgusting but I mean it is what it is and um dude the black dude the black dude in this movie is um when he gets possessed he's terrifying that laugh that he has I just thought of that yeah uh, that scene where he's like looking in the mirror and laughing and then he just like starts crying and like Donald Pleasance is like hiding around the corner like I don't know this it's um yeah, that's basically what ends up happening is that they, they they figure out through translating this massive book, uh their their linguistics translator figures out that this is liquid Satan, basically. <laughs> and uh it starts infecting them. Yeah. Well, it it, it is the son of Satan, which is 
basically been dormant for all these years, was was suppressed for all these years, and its mission is to basically bring back the anti-god. And and what's really interesting, I mean, the way it does sort of pay that stuff off is it sort of takes religion as not the sort of traditional spiritual belief that we all understand it as, but like this is all stuff that happened millions of years before all of that, right? So basically our stories about Jesus and all of that and Satan and the stuff you know from the Bible, those are all just sort of cover stories for this other thing that is as big in scale as all of that. And even Donald Pleasance's character, he basically is a great monologue in this movie where he explains that we've basically, us as the church, we've been bullshitting you for all of these years because there is this thing that is ultimate evil and Jesus did, Jesus was real and he was an alien essentially or some kind of otherworldly presence that came here to warn us of this thing that is just like Satan, right? I mean, it does, it fulfills the same purpose as Satan. So, you know, it it does, it kind of ties that stuff together really in a cool way. And I was thinking about religious horror movies, right? Because that's what I thought this was. I didn't realize there was going to be so much science here. Um, But most religious horror movies you have to sort of believe in religion a little bit for that movie to work for you, right? Like, if you don't believe in God and the devil, then The Exorcist kind of doesn't have the punch that it would if you're a a religious, a devout person where you do believe in God and you do understand that there is this sort of ultimate evil and the way to defeat it is with praying and holy water and stuff like that. And this movie takes all that stuff and throws it out the window, kind of. Like, for a religious horror movie, it is sort of anti-religion. It almost, like, treats religion as this very superficial thing that is a cover. It's just kind of papering over this really important thing, which is more sort of scientifically based. And um, that's a a very H.P. Lovecraft idea. And Carpenter, of course, has acknowledged his fandom of H.P. Lovecraft. I'm a huge Lovecraft fan also. The Thing is a very Lovecraftian movie. And then In the Mouth of Madness is just like hardcore. Like it's as close to a Lovecraft movie as we're ever going to get on on a budget and on a scale like that. But this one definitely has those sort of elder gods kind of ideas also where there are these things that are just so much bigger and scarier and more powerful than humanity and they're just sort of out there and maybe we can deal with them temporarily but they're always going to come back and it's really interesting the way this movie develops that that uh that monologue you were talking about with donald pleasance man you know how much i love that scene right i mean i love that scene i love how they they have that shot where they get everybody in the picture that uh is kind of a major element of it is the um the fact that this basement in, at this monastery that they're in was part of the 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 brotherhood of sleep which is like you know this these people that were able to communicate with each other through their dreams and in this movie the characters that are in the building you know as this canister of liquid starts to become more and more alive they all start to have shared dreams yes um and each time they have the dream the dream sequence goes a little bit longer and is a little bit more revealing and we end up finding out that these dreams are actually messages from the future uh people trying to transmit a message to them 
uh, from the year 1999 or whatever it is. So on top of all these other concepts that we're dealing with in the movie and all these other just ideas, basically, there's like this shared dream thing, too. So, yeah. And, yeah, and sending I think... tachyons back in time. I mean, that, those are pretty complicated ideas for a horror movie. And yeah. again, Carpenter is really pushing back against that simplistic sort of Jason Voorhees kind of formula where now we're going to talk about some serious shit here. And, you know, you can either hang with it or you can't. Yep. So, I mean, that said, I think I think part of why I like this movie so much is just the fact that, you know, you said something the other day when we were or the on one of the previous episodes when we were talking about Big Trouble in Little China, where you were watching the movie and, you know, a scene would happen or something. and You go, did that really just happen? Like, did I really just see that happen? And that's how I feel um, about this movie in a lot of ways for a lot of scenes. But. I, I will totally admit that I think, you know, some of the performances here are not the greatest. Uh, like you said, I think some of the comedy doesn't really work. There, There is, uh, like, none of these characters are extremely sympathetic. No, or and, and, and they're not developed the, at all, right? Like, he was criticized, yeah. Carpenter was criticized pretty roundly for that in The Thing. And yet, like, there are so many classic lines in The Thing, and people still remember those characters so well, and they talk about McCready and Blair. And, you know, if you follow these John Carpenter, like, Facebook groups and stuff, like, people can quote that movie endlessly. And there's really not oh, a yeah. lot of quotable dialogue here. And, uh, I mean, they're just, there's a lack of charisma in the actors. And it's not, I mean, they're not bad necessarily they're just kind of given nothing to do i mean they're just basically there and then they're victims and then they're gone or you know maybe some of them survive at the end of the movie but like there's no real stakes in terms of the characters here i mean victor wong and donald pleasance are very good like the older members of the cast here they are struggling mightily uh, peter jason is kind of fun even though we don't know much about his character and he just kind of it doesn't really amount to much but like these college student characters i mean dennis dunn i love Dennis Dunn in Big Trouble in Little China. He's such a charismatic actor. He's such a, a funny and just sort of uh, engaging presence. And he's just saddled with like some of the worst dialogue I've ever heard in a movie here. Like when he's cracking yeah. wise in that scene when he's in the confessional and the character is like going through this gruesome transformation and it looks like she's going to give birth to the devil or something like that. And he's just like cracking jokes at it. I'm like, did anybody think this was a good idea? Like you have this great actor and you have this amazing set up for a scene and he's just sort of cracking jokes here it's just it's bizarre to me and the the main character in this movie i don't mean to insult the guy um he was a tv actor he's on a show called simon and simon uh jameson parker is his name and he is just so bland that i don't <laughs> i mean it's like he's not even there he's just this guy he's this stereotypical white guy with a mustache in an 80s movie and kind of just goes with emotions and i guess he's really smart because he got into this physics program and he's trying to woo this other character. Uh, Lisa. Confirmed sexist and proud of it. Yeah, yeah, Catherine Danforth, which is Lisa Blount's <laughs> character. Odd. Yeah. Oh, the the romantic yeah. scenes earlier in the movie are just sort of awkward and meaningless. And then, yeah. um, you know, this this character, Catherine Danforth, she ends up becoming the hero of the movie. She makes this great yep. sacrifice at the end and we barely even know her. Like she's out of this movie for so long at a clip. It, it's almost like you forget that she even exists. Right. Like she's yep. she's a hero of the movie in the 
end, but we don't know why she makes that sacrifice or sort of what kind of character she is. We just know that she's good and she's pretty. And of course, you know, he is basically good and he's good looking. Well, she jumps into a giant, she jumps into a giant mirror. Yeah, this whole thing which... with the mirrors, it looks kind of cool, but it's not really set up well. And I, it, it doesn't satisfy me at all. And boy, that devil hand that comes out of there is terrible looking. Ah, see, I like that. I, I, I like the, yeah, I do. I, I do because um, I watched some of the extras on this movie, and I guess shooting that mirror scene was a ridiculous special effect that they had to do. They use mercury, um, right? Yes. Which is and, cool. I um, love mercury. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she is, uh, Kelly's character, once she has, you know, basically it just looks like her, her face is rotting off. Um, it's pretty gross to look at, but the special effects on it are cool. Yeah, like um, there, there's great special effects and then some kind of weak ones in this movie. Yeah, and it's like, okay, here we go into the other dimensional stuff, you know, and I get that. And that, yeah, they went as far as to show like this giant red hand, this paw, if you will, with black claws uh, come out of the mirror. And and I don't know, man, in my opinion, like, I think that's just so cool because it's like, holy shit, it's like the actual devil, you know, like. In, that must have been that imagery. I'm sure was inspired by what was that movie with uh, Tom Cruise in the mid '80s with the with the big red dragon. You mean Legend? Oh, God, yeah, it looks a little yes. bit like Legend. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. Seems totally out, reminded me of that. Out of place in a movie like this. Like I don't know. Like maybe I just don't want to see it at all. I certainly don't want it to be a big sort of special effect like at the end of the thing. Like that nah. would suck. But uh, this is just. I don't know. It looks like something out of a Mel Brooks movie to me. Um, yeah. The, the good news is, I mean, I, I think, like I said, the last 20 or 30 minutes of this movie are kind of a mess. And it's just like a lot of like Roger Ebert gave this two stars. And, and basically his thesis was it sets up a lot of really interesting kind of what we were saying. Uh, he was not as a big a fan of it as we were. But he basically says the last act of this movie is a lot of people just kind of running around in hallways and beating each other up and none of that stuff really works. But then we get that really cool ending sequence where uh, Brian Marsh, Jameson Parker's character, it took me a minute to think of his name because he's so boring. Um, he's having that dream again years later and we actually see that it is a warning from the future. And that reveal, yep. that twist right there, I think is a very cool stinger at the end of this movie. And that kind of got me back on board for it for a while. But there's this moment before that, like, you know, to, to Roger Ebert's point, this whole thing where they're breaking through walls. And again, Chris, I keep saying breaking through walls is a I was just going to say, man, man, you get yep. a lot of that in this. There's a whole sequence built around breaking through a wall. Um, they but, spend 20 minutes breaking through a wall. Yeah. Well, it, like, OK, it's a very cool setup for a scene. And Dennis Dunn's character is like, all right, how long is this going to take? And somebody on the other side of the wall is like a couple of hours. And I'm like, are we really going to watch them doing? I mean, obviously, it's not going to take a few hours in film time, but like. Like, is that the sequence where it's going to take them hours to break through this wall? Like, that just deflated the tension for me so bad right there. But, like, right after that, the uh, Anne Yen's character, Lisa, I believe is her name, she is possessed at this point, and she climbs through the wall, and they're, like, beating her with bricks, and she, like, keeps going she doesn't die and they're all like it's not working but then like other characters who are possessed they hit him once and they just fall down and they die so even the sort of internal logic of it falls apart at the end and that scene where she's crawling through the wall and they're beating her with very obviously fake bricks it's it's awful yeah i mean i look <laughs> i get it and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try to defend the elements that 
you're talking about because obviously it you know it has its issues but um i think in my opinion i think the reason why i'm so intrigued by this movie is be- is just simply because it's so bizarre and so ambitious in the first place and it's like i always have that sort of instinctive feeling that when i watch it again i'm going to notice something that i didn't notice you know on the previous viewing so i think this movie, warts and all, does have some replay value to it. Um, oh, I, I can't wait to watch it again. I mean, I, there were so many things yeah. that I really did like about this. Like, I was so on it's board entertaining. for this movie. For, for a, a large chunk of the running time, I was like, wow, this is freaking awesome. And a yeah. lot of the things that are set up, like we get the, the TV clip of the supernova early on. I mean, it kind of yes. builds these themes really well and sets up some interesting ideas there. And I just, I like the overall atmosphere of it. I love Love that set, like I was saying. Um, I wish they spent a little more time in there, actually. I mean, once we get out of there, I think, like, once the, the stuff gets out of the canister, I think that's where the movie starts to take a, a sort of negative turn for me. Um, because yeah. I do like the mystery of it. I like that they're slowly uncovering it. We talked about on a, a, our earlier podcast with Brian, who was a guest on the show once. He and I have this thing about movies about characters who are really smart and good at their jobs, just being smart and good at their jobs, right? Like, we like movies movies about teams of people, whether they're thieves or they're scientists or they're uh, military strategists or something, like really putting their heads together and figuring stuff out. There's like something very satisfying about that. And we get a little bit of that in this movie. You know, these are like really talented, brilliant researchers who are presented with this otherworldly crazy problem. And the scenes of them trying to figure that out while all this weird, ominous stuff is happening around them, I think that is extremely compelling. I really do. I like a lot lot of what this movie is trying to do uh but for me like because the dread and the apocalyptic feeling it increases so much to a point in this film like i know you've seen darren aronofsky's mother oh yes mm-hmm so for a while, I was like, is this going to get that crazy? Because it does. You know, that's a movie that just kind of uh, like it tops itself over and over and over again. Like it starts out fairly sedate and fairly subdued and kind of arty and just like a, a chamber piece almost. And then it goes to places that like I've never seen a movie go before. And there was a time when I thought Prince of Darkness was going to do something very similar to that, where we really were going to see some kind of little apocalypse in miniature here. And it never really happens. I I mean, it kind of devolves into just standard horror movie stuff. And then a lot of mumbo jumbo, like with the mirrors that I, I just kind of wasn't feeling. But up until <laughs> mumbo that, jumbo. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's a better way to describe it than that. But yeah, there's so many cool visuals leading up to that and so many cool ideas. And, you know, there's some moments earlier in the film where it's just like a character will go to bed, right? Like they go into this dormitory room that's set up for them and the other characters are still investigating they're doing their science stuff whatever and a character will just kind of lay down and you know they're going to have that creepy dream and just the feeling of being alone in a room in this church with that thing a couple floors below you like that's a very very creepy feeling and i think carpenter really gets that across well so uh, again i mean there are really great things about this movie it's just you know the script the dialogue probably could have used a few more passes and 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there is a satisfying way to pay off everything that he sets up because he just sets up so much and it's all so cool. And yeah, I don't know what the perfect version of this movie is and I don't know if it's even possible. But like I said, I love when when a filmmaker just sort of does something that ambitious and really reaches and it could be so silly and it could be so over the top and it never does that. And maybe that's a good thing. Well, before I forget, I I do want to mention one thing that I highly recommend to anybody out there listening that has a record player and wants to buy a badass motion picture soundtrack, dude. Death Waltz Records re-released uh, Prince of Darkness, I think, back in 2018. And if you can find it, Nick, how cool is this? You can get the Green Galaxy vinyl, where the vinyl looks like the Liquid Satan, which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, but they also do a straight green vinyl, and I have the white vinyl, which I also really like. Um, but this soundtrack, Carpenter and um, Howard's score, I mean, it just has such a... Um, it, it's, it's just got all this dissonant synthesizer stuff and then more of the traditional melodies that, that you'd expect from a Carpenter soundtrack. But a little bit of like church organ in there. Yeah. It has that sort of religious sort of feel to you've, it also. This is a great, great Yeah, you've score. got the choirs and, and stuff like that. And I mean, just for a, uh, a movie that deals so much in these complicated things like, you know, theoretical physics, religion, matter, antimatter, just science and, and religion, stuff like that. This score is somehow they were able to create a score that just kind of matches all those ideas and really sets the vibe for the movie very well. So if you want, like, I mean, I listen to this record all the time, Like, just putting this record on is really awesome. And when I, when I really want to geek out, you know, I'll have a night where I listen to the record all the way through and then watch the movie or vice versa. And um, <laughs> it's just, it's just awesome. Yeah, and um, just an, another point to the audio of this film, the sound design is really good also, and particularly in that nightmare sequence, um, that has been sampled by a number of people. There's a Marilyn Manson song that uses that, and yep. uh, it's this really, really great. I mean, just sort of, you're talking about dissonance, and like, I mean, it's, it's almost like an early found footage kind of thing, right? Because I guess Carpenter filmed it and then shot a TV screen with this on it, so it's kind of like warped, and it's got scan lines, and, you know, it's, it's a transmission from the future so it kind of suits that really well but that's just i mean it's visually very creepy it's auditorily very creepy and it really has this surreal sort of feeling that i wanted kind of more of that out of this film i think and that really got under my skin also i mean there's there's some unforgettable imagery in this movie the the bug scene that we were talking about earlier where it, it forms a human form um oh, yeah. and the bicycle impalement and just the 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 canister itself like the liquid shooting and the ceiling and this bubbling angry looking green liquid floating on i mean obviously they just reversed the shot right they just kind of shot it yep. and then flipped it over but it looks really good and uh, and we do i think it's it's very easy to suspend your disbelief and it's just a very cool visual even the stuff with the mirrors and the mercury like i don't like it as a plot device but i love the way it looks uh except for the devil hand even that sequence it's, is actually it's, very cool looking. Yeah, and and I think another um, just kind of main pillar of why I think I enjoy this movie so much is just how freaking odd it is. It's like up to you know doing his movies in order. This this movie drops and you're just like, okay, this is weird. This is the first time where he just gets weird, and I like that. I like how it's weird, and that weirdness yeah. is going to continue uh, into They Live. 
except there's going to be like a political backdrop behind everything. Well, I guess that's true, right? I mean, if you look at his movies up to this point, I mean, particularly the big ones, right? Halloween is a slasher film. It's a horror movie. It's a, it's sort of a grounded, non-supernatural. Maybe it's supernatural, but it's something that we had kind of seen. It's it's a follower of Psycho, right? And The Thing is a remake of a, a film about an alien invasion, sort of. I mean, it's, it's a genre that we're familiar with. Even Big Trouble in Little China, right? You can easily pigeonhole that as an action comedy with martial arts. Yep. But but this is, I mean, it's science fiction, it's horror, it's uh, sort of one location kind of... Um, it's almost a siege movie in a way. It's a siege movie, that, that's what I was trying to say, yeah. So it's all of those things with this just sort of very ambitious conceptual edge to it about literally like existence and the universe and what our place in the universe is. And yeah, I mean, it really does. It goes places where none of his other films go and... It really tackles ideas that I don't think we see. Like, I, I wouldn't think of Carpenter necessarily as, like, one of these big ideas kind of filmmakers, right? He's not Tarkovsky. He's a really great sort of genre auteur who can really create something that is moving and meaningful in that sort of genre sense, right? Like, a horror film like Halloween, where Laurie Strode is this character that we really care about and that is pitted against this very, very evil thing that she, as just a young girl, has to fight off. And so it's sort of a more primal thing, whereas this is just a, a very big scale. I mean, he's he's taking on things here that I don't really see him taking on anywhere else. You know, every other one of his films, you can sort of pigeonhole what the horror is and you could pigeonhole what the concept is. And this one, it's uh, it's much harder to explain. I mean, you heard me stumble my way through my explanation <laughs> of what this movie was earlier. So obviously, I mean, I think that is a point in favor of the movie is that it just takes on these things that... We don't really see him take on, I mean, you know, Vampires is a vampire movie, right? And Christine is about an evil car. Starman is about an alien that falls in love with a human. This is, you know, God and the devil and quantum mechanics and good and evil and light and dark and everything else in between. So, yeah, I mean, you have to admire it for that, if nothing else. But I admire a lot of stuff about it. Yep. And what an interesting uh, what an interesting point in, in his career, because I think... Part of it is is just having the full creative control again, you know, not doing the Christine movie, not not dealing with the larger studio movies like the, the Starman's and Big Trouble. So I just I don't know. There's just a certain feel that I like about this um, as far as just the energy that it has and, and the vibe that it has. And if anything, I think that while there's going to be many things that you can always point out that are kind of weak points to this film, I guarantee you that maybe on your second watch or third watch, uh, you'll come to appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you know what? Like I was just going to say, this is a movie that like, other Carpenter films, there's very obvious films that are kind of borrowing inspiration for them or sometimes just straight up ripping them off. And you don't necessarily see a lot of movies like Prince of Darkness, but I was thinking about The Void from a couple of years ago. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. It was maybe 17 or 18 that came out. And I think that is directly inspired by this. I mean, there's a lot of Carpenter in that film and it's got the cultists outside the hospital and it does take on some of these, you know, almost Lovecraftian ideas and the ending scene of that movie 
movie is even more wild than the ending scene of this movie. So it does, I mean, as far as imitators, whereas there's a million ripoffs of Halloween, right? But we don't see a lot of Prince of Darkness <laughs> wannabes out there yeah. because how do you even do this, right? I mean, there's so many religious horror movies, but this isn't really one of them. Like I was going into this expecting something a little bit more like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist or something. And it's it's just really not that. It's so much bigger than that, even though it's it's in some ways uh, like literally much smaller than those big budget studio movies. I don't know what else to say about it other than it's it's really Carpenter really shooting for the stars here and, yep. and kind of sort of landing among them, if not exactly hitting them. I think that's a good place to wrap this one up. Um, it is a movie that I, I think it was a good choice to go with one episode on this because we could get super deep on it. You know, and I mean, we could we could talk about this movie for 10 hours and, uh, you know, maybe we do that off air sometime. But uh, it's just it. I, I think that the fact that you first of all, the fact that you've seen it now, I'm just so happy because this was one of the few that I know you hadn't seen. And um, I'm I'm just glad that we are continuing this journey, man, because, uh, yeah, at this point, it's been between 1974 with Dark Star and 87 with Prince of Darkness. It's been a lot of fucking material to talk about. So. Yeah, and we still do have a long way to go. I mean, yep. maybe not uh, as many stone-cold classics as we've already talked about. We've covered a lot of the the sort of big, well, we're getting to the next one. We'll uh, Our next episode will be on 1988's They Live. I think we're going to do two episodes on that one because that yes. is definitely one of the all-time sort of Carpenter favorites. But yeah, it's uh, it's really been sort of interesting to just see the trajectory of his career and um, I'm glad I finally saw this movie, but uh, we'd love to know your thoughts about this film or any of the others that we've talked about or are going to talk about. If you'd like to reach us via email, we are at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at 13precinct, facebook.com slash 13precinct, and our website where you can download all of our episodes and subscribe to the show is precinct13.simplecast.com. We'd also love if you could leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts from. Let us know what you think of the show. We would really appreciate that. We love all the fan correspondence that we've got. Uh, maybe you can change my mind on some elements of Prince of Darkness or uh, or maybe enlighten us to things that we maybe missed about this movie because there is, uh, as Chris was saying, a lot going on there. With that, I think we're going to head out and uh, get ready to don our sunglasses for They Live. Any final thoughts, Chris? Oh, I'll be wearing my blue blockers, baby. <laughs> Hell yeah. Rowdy Roddy Piper time. I'm really looking forward to it. We will be back in two weeks for part one of our discussion of They Live.